We're going to continue on with that thought, and we're looking at verse number 4 through verse number 7 today. Um, this month will mark, the last Sunday of the month will be nine years of pastoring here at Victory Baptist Church. And uh, the week before that, so that would be two weeks from day nine years ago, I preached a candidating sermon here. And uh, everything looked a little different back then, and uh, I've got more gray hair now than what I had. I don't think I had any gray hair back then. And uh, I preached a message, my candidating message, and let's see, I think in this service, the only two that were in here, that were here that day, was Rick and Edna sitting over there in the side room. Do you remember what I preached that day? When you, anybody remember? No? I didn't remember either until I was looking at my notes. I preached a sermon, but God was the title of it, out of these verses here. And I looked at my notes from nine years ago, and I got to say, it looked like a child wrote those notes. Compare, and then I looked at today, me writing for today, I'm like, oh, it still looks like a big kid wrote these notes. So we're in for, we're going to look at some wonderful things today in the scriptures. And what we look at and what we got to understand as we dive in this morning and we look at verse number four, it starts with a conjunction, but God, and goes into some things describing what God has done for us. It all reminds us of the fact of what we see in verse one through three where we were before salvation. Now, let me explain. Salvation is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is salvation. It's not about your works. It's not about your baptism. It's not about being in a Baptist church. It's not about any of those things, about your relationship with Christ. In order to go to see the Father, you must go through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said very clearly, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. There is no other way. And in this life, there are people trying lots of different avenues to get themselves to heaven. And the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ, pure, plain, and simple. That's it. It's not complicated. You've got to believe in Jesus Christ. And that he died and rose again for your sins, that is salvation. That's what the gospel, the good news, is all about. But we see in these verses, before salvation, we see several things about ourselves. Look at verse number 1. And you hath he quickened. The word quickened means made alive. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. So before salvation, before we trusted Christ as our Savior, the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The spirit of man is dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2 says, Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had, so everyone before salvation, we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So Paul goes through and lists all these things. This was our condition before salvation. But what we see happen is the next two words are very powerful. But God... In spite of us being dead in our sins, in spite of the fact that we walked according to the course of this world, despite the fact that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, despite the spirit that worked in the children of disobedience being in us, despite all those things, despite the fact that our conversation is in the lusts of our flesh, and we are fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and despite the fact that we were children of wrath, God stepped in. And that's what this passage is all about. Before salvation, this is where we were. But God did this. The Bible tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, 
even when we were dead, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. I want you to look this morning with me, and the top of my message is very simply, but God. I'm glad that God butted into my life. And I mean that wholeheartedly today. We go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, God warmed down, hey, of all the trees of the Garden of Eden, but there's one tree, don't eat it, or you'll die. And what does Adam and Eve do? They eat of the one tree that they're not supposed to eat of. Satan, we know that he tempts and deceives Eve. We see Adam sins, and sin enters into the picture at that time. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, you don't see them crying out to God and saying, Hey, God, we need your help. God, we messed things up. No, what do they do? They sow fig leaves on themselves and go hide themselves from the presence of God. The reason they hid themselves from the presence of God is because God and sin cannot coexist. And God can't look on sin. And if Adam and Eve, in their sinful state, stood right there before God, there would have been a big problem. They were hiding. They did not ask God for help. But God came to where he always did. God came and said, Adam, where are you? Oh, God, I'm hiding over here. I knew I was naked, so I'm hiding from you. Who told you you were naked? God knew they ate the fruit. Adam blames his wife. Like every good man does. If something goes wrong, just blame your wife. It's probably her fault. And uh, the wife blames the serpent. Everybody's just blaming somebody for something. And then we see sin entered into the picture. And death by sin, all men have sinned. But God came. He gave them skins to wear. Shedding of blood, without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And God came to a very bad situation and helped them out. Think about a man named Joseph in the Bible. And Joseph was a good young man. Maybe he shouldn't have shared his dreams with everybody around. That might, that might have helped him out. You know, your brothers are already jealous of you. And then you tell them, someday I had a dream and you're going to bow to me. Maybe he should have had a little bit of discernment there and not shared his dream with his brothers. That might have helped just a little bit. You know, was he the brother that was favored and so he flaunted it? I don't know exactly, but he could have been a little bit more careful, I think, in a few things. His brothers despised him, hated him. They decide they're going to kill him. They throw him in a pit. One of the brothers is like, no, let's not kill him. Let's just, we'll sell him off as a slave. Isn't that so nice? Probably been better just to kill him than to send him off as a slave. So they sell him and he goes into Egypt. And a lot of things happen to Joseph over time. In the process of time, he goes and he works for a man named Potiphar. He goes high into that family. And he's second in command in the house. Potiphar's wife lies about him. And then we see he goes to jail. And eventually... After going to jail, he interprets some dreams and things happen, and he becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And his brothers come to get food because there's a famine, and amazing enough, his brothers bow down before him. His brothers bow down before him, they're there, and eventually Joseph tells them who he is, and don't you think they were a little scared? Second mightiest man in Egypt, and you sold him as a slave, and you did all these wrong things to him. Daddy dies. And the guys think, well, since dad's dead, Joseph's going to get even with us. And most of us in the room would probably get even because that's how we are 
and uh, we wouldn't be like Joseph. But what does Joseph do? Joseph says, hey guys, you meant it for evil to me, but God meant it for good. God took a man like Moses with anger issues and kills a man. And God used him to lead the children of Israel to the promised land, but God. Three Hebrew boys in Babylon. The king made a decree that everybody at a certain time when they heard the sound of music would have to, and not the sound of music, that movie, I would never watch that, never have, never will. Anybody like the sound of music in here today? Shame on you. The altar's up here later, and uh, you can get right with God about that later. Sound of Music, Hallmark Channel, both of those. I don't know why those were ever invented. I don't have a clue. But anyways, and so, oh, for you, God made sports. That's, you know, I can understand watching a football game for three hours. I cannot, I cannot comprehend watching a movie, Sound of Music, for three hours. The hills, I don't even, I'm not going to even get into all that. I walked in one time when they were playing it, just, oh, anyways, almost ruined my day. But almost as bad as my team losing in the football game. But anyways, three Hebrew boys won't bow. Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fiery furnace. Three of them. Nebuchadnezzar looks later and he's like, didn't, I, didn't we throw three in there? Because I see four in there, and the fourth is like the Son of God. You see, God stepped in once again. God could take, in the New Testament there, he could take these disciples. He could take a fisherman like Peter, and he could change his life and make him a fisher of men. A tax collector, and we all know tax collectors are corrupt, right? Matthew was a tax collector, and he's collecting. God could take a tax collector and do something in his life. God could take a man like Saul, who's persecuting the church and wreaking havoc on the church. God could take a man like Saul and come to him on Damascus Road and change his life forever, and he becomes the Apostle Paul, and he writes seven, how many other books he wrote in the New Testament, a lot of them. God stepped in and God did a great work. When I was six years old, I had my moment where God stepped into my life and changed things in my life. And I'm thankful for that moment. And you that today that are saved, you had that moment when God stepped in and when God did a work inside of you. And praise God for his working in your life. Number one, as we dive into the message today, we see divine intervention. Divine intervention. When we talk about but God, first thing we see is divine intervention. We see, first of all, letter A underneath this point. We see God's intervention is personal. The words, but God, are filled with glory, power, and meaning. Two words, six letters, a conjunction, and a personal noun. It might be two of the greatest words in the entire Bible. Those two words tell us where salvation originates. It originates in the person of God. Those two words tell us how salvation comes to us. God makes the first move. We love him because he first loved us. That's the way it works. You don't hear people, oh, I love God. No, we love him because he loved us first. He made the first move. In Adam and Eve in the garden, God made the first move. In salvation, he makes the first move. John 6, verse number 44, the scripture tells us, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I'll raise him at the last days. You see, those two words, but God, make all the difference between life and death, between a life of turmoil 
and a life of peace, between a life of sin and sorrow and a life lived to the glory of God. Those two words, but God, mean the difference between damnation and eternal life, the difference between heaven and hell, but God. We look at those verses again. The Bible says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God stepped in. We walked according to the course of this world, but God stepped in. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, but God stepped in. The spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience, but God stepped in. God did it, and praise God that he did. Praise God for that personal interest God has in us today. Thank God for it. We see God's intervention is personal, but letter B, God's intervention is precious. Look at the rest of verse number four. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Let's think about that for a minute. The Bible says here that God is rich in mercy. The word rich means overabundance, that which is without measure, unlimited. That's his mercy. Our God, he is rich in mercy. The word mercy means goodness or kindness towards the miserable and afflicted, coupled with a desire to help them. Our Savior, while he lived here on earth for those 33 years, he walked this earth, and many times the Bible said that he was moved with compassion. And as he looked on those who were helpless in their affliction and in their sin, and on an occasion the Savior's mercy moved him to reach out to them and do something to help them. The leper, he healed him. That's how Jesus did it. He's rich in mercy what he does in salvation there's never been a more afflicted and miserable group than those described in verse one through three and let's be honest this morning if you're not saved this morning verse one through verse number three describes your condition and where you are today and then you say oh well that's not me pastor you were there and you did nothing to make yourself better god did everything what we get sometimes in Christianity, we get this high and mighty thought about us. Like we're something special. Do you realize we're not? In the beginning, Adam was created out of the dust of the ground. We are all a bunch of dirt. I like to say we're all a bunch of dirt balls. Some are bigger dirt balls than other dirt balls, but at the end, we're all dirt balls. And we get things so high and mighty of ourselves. No, where you're at today is because of God's mercy. And because of his grace, where I am today, it's not me that's gotten me to the point to where I am. It's God's grace and his mercy that I've gotten to where things are today. It's what he's done. And that's what this whole passage is referring to. And we see here that, and when you think about it, there's never been a more afflicted or more miserable group than those that are described in verse 1 through 3. And in spite of our wickedness, in spite of our fallen condition, in spite of our continual rebellion, in spite of all those things, in God's mercy... He was moved to do something to help us. When you think about mercy, you think about, you think about the fact of not receiving what one deserves. All of us have one thing that we deserve. It's not going to sound very nice, but it's what the Bible says, and we're people of the book. I often hear people say, I deserve better. I deserve a better house. I deserve a better car. I deserve... There's one thing that we deserve. Are you ready? The wages of sin is death. 
We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. Brian today deserves hell. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And what did Jesus Christ do? He came, died on the cross, and paid our sin debt so that we would not have to go to hell. Now, to differentiate between mercy and grace, because some people have a hard time deciphering the two and separating the two, mercy's not, it, mercy, as I just mentioned a second ago, is not receiving what one deserves. But whereas when we think of grace, we think of the fact it's uh, when we think of heaven. Not only do we not get what we deserve, but you get all these added benefits. You get the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You have heaven to look forward to. Those are all benefits. That's His grace. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, and then grace is getting all these things on top of it. If he just saved us, and that was it, that would be more than enough. But thank God for what he's done. The Bible tells us here that the Lord's mercy for the sinner flows out of his love for the sinner. Paul calls it his great love. And if we as God's people could, try, could comprehend the love of God... And Paul even prayed it for the church at Ephesus here in the book, in chapter number 3, that they, would, that they would be able to comprehend the length, the breadth, the width, height of God's love. When we talk about God's love, and I'm going to break it down just a little bit for you, but God's love is eternal. Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. His love is not a love that comes and goes. It's an eternal love. His love is a sacrificial love. The Bible tells Romans 5, 8, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can also look at, um, the Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. There's no greater love than that Jesus would lay down his life and die so that we could have life. God's love is eternal, it's sacrificial. His love's unconditional. So many Christians try to put limits on the love of God. It's unconditional. I heard, and, and you can, whatever, with all these different things, but a big thing in Catholicism, and a lot of people have a little bit of Catholicism buried deep inside of them, even if they're not Catholic. But the idea that um, suicide, if a Christian commits suicide, then they cannot be saved because they died in sin. Look what the Bible says. This is the Bible. Paul says it. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from his love. When you are, you see at the end there, which are in Christ Jesus... We're going to look back in, in uh, Ephesians 2 in a minute and see some things about being in Christ and with Christ and all these things. When you're in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate you from his love. I don't care what it is, nothing can. You're saved. He loves you this morning. His love's unconditional. His love's also a personal love. John 15, 9, the Bible says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. And then his love's effectual. The Bible says in John 3, 16, most people know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What makes the love of God so amazing is the object of that love. Verse 4 says, 
It says, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith, look, he loved us. That us refers to those who are redeemed from among the lost multitudes described in verse 1 through 3. It speaks of us who didn't love him. It speaks of us who lived in rebellion against God's word, his will, and his way. It speaks of us who deserved judgment and damnation in hell. It speaks of us who hated him and loved our sins. It speaks of us. He loved us. What a God. When we were in the depths of our sin and deserved nothing but damnation and wrath, he had no reason to reach out to us, but he did. And that's why verse 5 very clearly says, By grace ye are saved. We're like the poor man who was robbed and left for dead in the parable in the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, a couple men pass by him and do nothing. And those men represent religion and good works pass by, but they couldn't help. But our Good Samaritan, Jesus Christ, came to where we were, climbed into our ditch, and gave his life for us, paying everything we owed. He lifted us out of the, de- the ditch of death, deception, depravity, and doom, and he healed our condition and helped us. He did this knowing that we could never repay him. He did it because he loves us. Thank God for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Years ago, a man penned a song, and this is a couple of the verses of it, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his own son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made where every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong it shall forever more endure the saints and angels' song. God stepped in. God's intervention is personal. It's precious. And let her see. God's love is profound. Or his intervention is profound. Notice when God's intervention took place. Look at verse number five. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. God didn't wait until our condition improved. He did not wait until we reformed. He didn't wait until we got better. He set his love on us while we were dead in our sin. He set his love on us in spite of our wickedness. He intervened. God's love doesn't make much sense to the mortal mind. I, when I stop to think about why does God love me? Normally we look at people and a lot of times love and the reason why you know, what, what do we get out of it? So I picture myself, and I picture God, and I try to think, what does God get out of me? Whew. All right. Does God get a good person? No, he gets a troublemaker. Does God, what does God get from me? 
I mess up all the time. I never do everything that I'm supposed to do. I fall short of his glory. I'm never going to add up and be what I should be. How? Why? And I don't understand it. But I praise God for it. Praise God for that love. Um, a preacher once said, he used this illustration. I think this illustration might help you a little bit with thinking about it. It says, if a person were driving down the street and carelessly ran down and killed a child, he probably would be arrested, tried, fined, and imprisoned for involuntary manslaughter. But after he paid the fine and served the sentence, he'd be free and guiltless before the law in regard to that crime. But paying his penalty before the law would do nothing to restore the life of the child or alleviate the grief of the parents. The offense against them was on an immeasurably deeper level. The only way a relationship between the parent and the man who killed their child could be established or restored would be for the parent to offer forgiveness. No matter how much the man might want to do so, he could not produce reconciliation from his side. Only the one offended can offer forgiveness, and only forgiveness can bring reconciliation. Though we greatly offended and sinned against God, Matthew 18, 23-35, you can read that parable. Because of God's rich mercy and His great love, He offered forgiveness and reconciliation to us as He does to every repentant sinner. Though in their sin and rebellion all men participated in the wickedness of Jesus' crucifixion, God's mercy and love provided a way for them to participate in the righteousness of His crucifixion. I know what you are and what you've done, God says. But because of my great love for your penalty has been paid, my law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of my Son on your behalf. For His sake, I offer you forgiveness to come to me. And you only need to come to, to, come to me, you only need to come to Him. Not only did He love enough to forgive, but also enough to die for the very ones that offended Him. Very profound. Thank God for his divine intervention. Thank God the Bible says, but God. Number two, we see divine identification. Now, I'm going to say a few things over the next few minutes, and you might think I sound a little crazy in what I'm going to say. I'm just going to warn you now. I will tell you right now, I am a little crazy. You can ask my wife, but that's not, we're looking at the Bible here, okay? So what the Bible says is what we're going with here. And you can say you disagree with me, and it's okay that you're wrong. I'll, you know, someday you'll admit you're wrong. That's okay. But as we look at this this morning, I want you to see some profound things about divine identification when it comes to the believer and when it comes to the things of God. We saw in verse 4 described divine intervention. It describes God intervening in our lives to bring us to Jesus Christ by His grace. But what I want you to see is, the Bible tells us in Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Do you have um, 1 Corinthians 15, 22? The Bible says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. When we get saved, we are placed in Christ. We become the exact opposite of what we were before. Everything changes and it changes forever. And these verses tell us about that change that took place and how it is. Because God, when he looks at Brian today, God doesn't look at Brian and see Brian in his sin. When God looks at Brian, 
If you're wondering who Brian is, that's me. When God looks at Brian, he sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Because once you get saved, you are in Christ Jesus. And so I want you to look, and I'm going to break this down a little bit for you, and we're going to see some things. But Paul says, contrast what we become in Christ and what we were before we met Christ. That's what verse 1 and 3 is about. Then verse 4 and 7, we see the contrast between the two. Not only has God intervened into the lives of the redeemed and saved us from our lost condition, but he identifies with us, with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, look at verse 5, you see a couple words there. You see, with Christ. In verse number 6, you see, in Christ Jesus. Verse number 7, you see, through Christ Jesus. Because we are in Christ, we are identified with Christ. What is true of Jesus Christ is true of all those who are in Jesus Christ. Where he is, they are. What he is, they are. And this passage speaks of three specific areas in which the redeemed identify with the Lord. I'm going to give those to you. Letter A, we see we're identified with him in his resurrection. Paul says that even, even when we are dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. The word there means to quicken, to make alive. When God saves a lost sinner, he brings them out of spiritual death and imparts to them the very resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he does. The former lost soul becomes a new creature. The former dead sinner is instantly born again. He is delivered from spiritual death and depravity and doom, and he's given life and given life more abundantly. When the sinner is saved, you think about this, and as we dive into it, he begins to live a new life. The Bible tells us Romans 6, verse number 4. Therefore, now you might notice a lot of my preaching, there's a lot of Bible there. What we need in preachers today is Bible. What we get today is a lot of man's opinions on the Bible. Let the Bible take care of the Bible for itself. And there's a lot of Bible in my messages. And that's one of the things. My messages, the last service, it went about 50 minutes long. I know it was a long one last service. And some of you get here ready for second service. But most of the people who come to second service show up late anyway. So I was just helping out by starting the service late for you. So, right, Tristan? But anyways, we see, and as we look at verse number 4 of chapter 6 here, it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. The like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When we get saved, we begin a new life. His walk is new, and he is made alive to the things of God. We're no longer dead to God, to the things of God, his word, his will, but alive to God. And think about Paul said this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But look what he says. Yet not I, but who? Christ liveth in me. Look at that. Look at that real good. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because we share his life, it means that tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. Through our connection with Jesus Christ, we have not just been given any old life, we've been given new life, his life, 
We have been empowered to live new lives as new creatures to the glory of God. We see that we are identified in his resurrection letter B. We're identified in his ascension. Now hang with me here, okay? Hang with me. And you are all doing good. And uh, last service, they didn't hang with me completely. They hung with me about, but you guys are all, you got that extra little bit of sleep from the first service, so you guys are all, you are all doing very well this morning. We're, we're, we're together on this. We're identified with him in his ascension. Paul says, and hath raised him, look what it says here, and hath raised him up together with him. That phrase refers to the ascension back into heaven. Book of Acts talks about Acts chapter number 1. It says, verse 9 and 10, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Hebrews 10, verse 12 to 14 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. I think you understand this. Jesus today is in heaven. When he died on the cross, he rose again for about 40 days. He taught the disciples lots of things. He was seen over 500 people. He was here. And then in the book of Acts, right at the very beginning, he was taken a cloud received him out of their sight. And someday that same Jesus will return in that same spot at his second coming, the rapture happens before that. I talk about all that on Wednesday nights if you want to hear about that stuff. But what I want you to understand is this. When Jesus ascended from the top of the Mount of Olives, all the redeemed ascended into heaven with him. Look what it says there. And hath raised us up together. Hath. That's, that's not talking about future. In your Bibles, Ephesians 2, verse number 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, we are identified with him in his resurrection, his ascension, and let her see, and I'll tie these things together. We're identified with him in his position. Paul says, and I have made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When Jesus left this earth, as we've already said, he ascended back into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. When he went up, guess what the Bible says here? We went up with him. When he sat down, we sat down. No, I realize. You say, Pastor, you're losing it. You're saying that we're already seated in heaven. That's what I'm saying. Say, well, Pastor, I'm sitting in church. You are not, you know, listening to you is not being in heaven. I understand that. But the Bible says that we're already seated in heavenly places. Say, well, how does all of that make sense? You see, one of the things you've got to remember is this. God does not dwell in time like we do god is eternal he's the beginning he's the end that's why he could write the book of revelation and say all the future events are going to take place because he's already there and knows it all when he sees his children when god looks at you and me he sees us in christ jesus already even before we got saved he knew in his foreknowledge that we would get saved Elect according to the foreknowledge of God is what the Bible says. So God knew that in 1991, Brian Passon would get saved. And because he knew that, and because he's God, but when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he rose again, when he ascended up into heaven, I was with him, and I am with him in heaven, seated in heavenly places already. 
We have people today that doubt their salvation. Let me give you one of the greatest truths of the Bible to help you with the doubt your salvation. You're already seated in heavenly places. You're already there. He's not going to kick you out once you're already there. He's already done it. It's a past event taking place. So when you're saved, you are always saved and nothing you do can change that fact. Do you see that? Can you comprehend that this morning? Where he is, we are. We are identified with him today. Praise God for that. That's why and when we think about our salvation being so secure, the Bible says, by grace are ye saved through faith. That's a present tense statement. It speaks of the situation that's always ongoing. The saints will be saved today. They'll be saved tomorrow. They'll be saved 10 million years from today. And as far as God is concerned, we're already in heaven. And all we have to do is finish the trip. Say, Pastor, that makes no sense to me. Doesn't make complete sense to me either. I'm going to be honest with you. It's kind of hard to comprehend, but the Bible says it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and is what the Bible says. So trust the book. See, I can't wrap my mind around it. Do you realize God's ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts? Thank God he doesn't think like we do. Thank God he's so much better than we are. Praise God for it, but we're identified with him in his position. Our current status is viewed through the lens of our togetherness with Jesus Christ. That's why so many people, they live their lives and, oh, if I do this or if I do that, God's going to just love me more. You can't be loved more than you already are. You're in Christ. It's settled and done. We look at ourselves, oh, we're, and people will look and I've got this issue in my life and I've got this issue and I'm this and I'm that and I'm all these different things. So many people are so insecure today. You want to help your insecurity today? Realize who you are in Christ. There's nothing to be insecure about. You're safe, settled, secure, and you've already got a seat in heaven. And think about this one. If you're here today and you're not saved, but at some point in your life before you die you do get saved, you're already seated up there too. If you're not saved today, I would get that settled and get that taken care of so you can be with Jesus. All right, my mind's kind of, I got a new emoji on my phone where you can do a head where it's blown apart. And if you spend too much time thinking in this area, I almost put that emoji up on the screen like, and you're just like, oh, wow. I'm already in heavenly place. It's a lot to think about, but praise God for it. We're citizens of heaven today. That's why the Bible tells Philippians 3.20 that our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Lord, for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should live like it. And one day we'll be going home and this world's not our home, we're just passing through. I think a good way to describe it and to look at it is one man said it this way, when you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. And when we see a saved child of God, you know, we didn't get there by ourselves. It was God who was rich in mercy wherewith he loved us. And the grace of God to save a sinner like me. 
we see divine intervention. Number two, we see divine identification. And number three, and lastly, and just because it's lastly doesn't mean I'm done yet, so don't get all comfortable yet. We still got a few last things to get to. Divine intentions. Look at verse number seven. Then the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Sometimes we look and we wonder, why has God done all that he's done? Why has God been so good to me? Why, why did God let that happen in my life? Lots of different questions. That verse says, then the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. Letter A, we see that God intends to reveal the riches of his grace to us. This verse indicates that God will use the unfolding ages of eternity to reveal the extent of his grace in our lives. As it stands now, we really don't grasp a true concept of what all Christ has done for us. When we arrive in heaven, we will. He'll be able to show us and we'll be able to comprehend the extent of his grace. When we arrive home, we'll be made to understand the wonder of God's love the price of his grace and the power of his salvation. And when that happens, and we get a grasp of what he's done, what are all the redeemed of heaven going to do? Revelation 4, verse number 10, the Bible says, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns. You see those cast their crowns on... Um, that's not the band casting crowns. We're talking about casting crowns here. On Wednesday nights, we're going through a series on biblical prophecy. And this Wednesday night, we're going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ and the crowns that we as Christians can receive. The crowns that we receive, what we're going to do with those crowns are, we see we're going to be casting them before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. As we learn and understand it all, we're going to be praising Him more. Revelation 5 talks about how there was they, that John was getting sad because no one was worthy to take the book and open it, and he saw the Lamb. It says, when they had taken the book, the four and twenty beasts, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints, verse number 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Do you realize that when he comes the second time, we come with him? Yeah? And while he's reigning, we reign? Do you see everything? You can try to wrap your mind around everything that we have in Christ. What he, yeah, anyways. You can think about that one more on your ride home. We're going to be praising him for all he's done. Christian, today, 2019, October 6th, we should be praising him for all he's done today. Hebrews 13, 15 tells us, By him, by Jesus, therefore, let's offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We should be praising him today. And then we see letter A, that God intends to reveal the riches of his grace to us. Then letter B, we see God intends to reveal the riches of his grace 
through us. And you could look at verse 7 there. It talks about that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. And I'm stealing a few verses from next week. Look at verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And look at verse number 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And you've got to understand something. God, God uses us to show this world His grace. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The problem is most Christians don't live a life like they should and they're a bad testimony to God. The biggest problem with Christians are Christians because we don't act like Christians. Christians are those who are Christ-like. And we should be striving for it. How are people going to know that we're followers of the Lord, disciples of the Lord? This shall all men know my disciples if you have love one for not, toward another. That's what the Bible says. And uh, let's make sure of something in our church. We love one another. If you've got a problem with someone, you deal with it and fix it. Even if you're not right, right or wrong, deal with it and get it right. We don't have, we love one another. You can go to another church and fight with people. We don't fight around here. If I were to fight with everybody that, was, that has wronged me, I wouldn't have anybody here. Any, no, I'm just teasing. That's not Christianity. Christianity is loving your brother. Aren't you glad that God, when you were wrong, loved you? Yeah, me too. So why don't we act like him? And I love it. Someone told me a while back, I've had like five different people tell me this just recently. Well, I'm not God. Five different people in our church tell me that same phrase. You're supposed to be acting like him. How do people know you're a follower of God? If you love one another. So do what you're supposed to do. All right, I'll love them, but I don't have to like them. Fine, if that works for you, fine, that'll work for me. If you're saved today, you are a billboard of God's mercy and His grace to the world around us. Your life is a testimony of His saving power. Let's labor for Him and live for Him. My sermon's done. I was lost in sin, but God stepped in. I was trapped in darkness, but God stepped in. I was separated from God and headed to hell, but God stepped in. I was under the control of Satan. I was a prisoner to my passions and lusts, but God stepped in. I was dead, deceived, depraved, and doomed, but God stepped in. Because God intervened in my life, I'm not the person I used to be. My life's been changed, and my eternal destiny is forever settled. Because of what he did, I'm saved from my wretched past. I now have an identity with Jesus Christ, and I'm secure in his salvation. If you're here this morning and don't know Christ as your Savior, he died for you and loves you. That's all salvation is. He loved you so much he gave his son for you. Salvation is trusting in what he did. It's not 
It's not about your good works. It's not about your baptism. It's not about being a member of a Baptist church. None of those things matter. It's your belief in that Jesus died and that he rose again according to the scriptures. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And if you're not saved this morning, today would be a great day to get that settled. And Christian in the room, when's the last time you just thanked him? Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for the price you paid. Bearing all my sin and shame, in love you came and gave me amazing grace. Thank you for this love, Lord. Thank you for those nail-pierced hands. When was the last time you just thanked him? He deserves thanks. He deserves to be praised. And someday we will all praise him when we're there. But what are you doing now? Child of God, you're in him today. That's powerful. Man, that's powerful. What a Savior, what a God. Thank God that he reached down to me. Thank God he reached down to you. If you're not saved, get that settled today. If you're saved, I would encourage you. Last service, I, 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 when it comes to the invitation time, I don't ever tell people you need to come and pray at the altar. I don't do that because that's between you and God. But I will say this today. It'd be a shame if this altar isn't full of Christians thanking God for what he's done for them. And if you can hear a message like you did today, not because I'm some great preacher, but because you could hear the word of God preached today, and you're a saved child of God, and it does nothing what Christ did for you, you need help. You literally need help. And I might wonder if you're even saved. I don't say that to be mean. I'm just saying truth. If you're not saved today, get that settled. Know him. If you're saved today, worship and thank him for what he's done in your life. Father, thank you for the time that we've